0: Welcome to another episode of Bothell Amplified. It's Mackenzie Britton here. I am the producer for the podcast and your temporary host while Pastor Joe is on vacation. This week at Bothell, we welcome back our friend Andrew G. Lang, who returns to preach, this time from Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, and verses 44 through 52, in another installment of our 2023 Summer Sermon Series. Check it out now on Bothell Amplified.
1: He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out his treasure what is new and what is old. Holy words for God's people.
0: So I want to start today with uh, a slightly modified quote from uh, a guy named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, for those of you who know. About him. He was a French priest, a paleontologist, a uh, theologian. Uh, back in the early 20th centuries he was one of those I really like people who have skill sets in like a ton of different areas and he integrated all of it together into this eco-spirituality so I want to share a little quote from him he says above all trust in the slow work of God we are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within us will be. Let us give God the benefit of believing that God's hand is leading us, and let us accept the anxiety of feeling ourselves in suspense and incomplete. Pretty fun. I don't think, when I read these scriptures today, I don't think the disciples had any idea what Jesus was talking about. Um, I, I, I just, I think that they had followed him long enough that they were like, this sounds like a Jesus teaching. This sounds like a parable we hear from, from Jesus. He is our, he's a teacher. He's a wisdom teacher. We're with him, um, but we're not, we don't have a firm grasp on what he's talking about because they're parables, he teaches in parables, and parables have layers and layers and layers of complexity. That's the cool thing about metaphor and poetry and songs, is that they speak to a part of us that's deeper than our rationality, our critical thinking skills. They get in us, and they dance their way around. That's why uh, you can hear a line of poetry from Mary Oliver, and it'll still be in your head weeks later. Or, for me, a couple nights ago, you can uh, find yourself hearing a song that just pierces you somewhere that you didn't know was tender, and you can just find yourself bawling your eyes out. For me, it was a couple nights ago while shaving. It was a really sad sight, but it was Adele, so whatever. Um, And this is the power of poetry and metaphor and parable. And so, Richard Rohr, a few years ago, was sitting with us down in Albuquerque, and he he said something that I know I've heard him say elsewhere, but he says, when you speak truth too directly to someone, what happens is that it bounces off their shields. It bounces off their egos. It bounces off of all their defense mechanisms. And we can feel that in our own life. When someone says something that hits a little too close to home, we erupt. We shut down, we, maybe we shut down, but it hits our fight-flight-freeze, um, or our defensiveness goes up, and we reject everything that person has to say to us for the next 13 years, right? So this is the power and the role of metaphor and song and poetry and parable, is that it sneaks around those defense mechanisms that we have to protect us from things that might change our mind or might change our status quo, the way we live. It sneaks around until something in our internal posture whatever part of us is ready to meet the wisdom that it has for us. Uh, For those of you who are familiar with internal family systems or parts work, I imagine these little pieces of us that are really heavily protecting us from everything. Song and poetry and parable get in us and they get around those parts until the tender softness that's within us all of a sudden hears the wisdom and says, there's something here for me. In other words, and in the context of our scripture this morning, these teachings move slow in us. They're sneaky, and they move softly around the edges in the darkness. They're like uh, water slowly percolating down into the soil of our inner life. That's why I don't think the disciples got it when Jesus said, do you get it? I don't think immediately you can say, yes, the water is completely percolated down, and I understand this on multiple levels. I don't think that's, that's real. As Deschardins says, we are invited to trust in the slow work of God. So when we hear these teachings, and many of you have heard these teachings for years and years, every pastor has spoken about them multiple times. Uh, I know my dad was a pastor. What he would often do is he would go to the old sermons that he had taught uh, or had preached on specific scriptures, and sometimes he would just pull the old one out and give that one again because he knows everyone's forgotten it. Um <laughs> It's a skill set. Uh, But this is, um, you can come to church for 40 years and hear the same thing over and over and over again. It takes time for the water and the wisdom of a teaching to percolate down into the soil of your inner life. It's an ongoing invitation. We have this ongoing invitation to open our internal posture to possibility, to trust in the slow work, And to see what then will meet us in that space or if we want to use the water percolating into the soil metaphor uh, to see what's going to end up growing what's going to end up emerging which isn't fun because we want speed we'd all prefer speed Uh, we'd like to have answers we're evolved to have a bias for quickness for resolution for completion Uh, for a way to tie it all up in a bow and to move on. Give me my spiritual formation in a six-week course. Uh, Maybe have everyone up at the end of it saying, we did it, we are disciples now. Um, Or have church be one hour only. Uh, How dare it go longer than that? One hour a week for 40 years and I'll be good. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. And so, as I said, when Jesus gets the end of these four or five parables, and says, y'all got it. I can imagine that the disciples were like, yeah, 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 we we got it, because they wanted to get it, just like us. We want to get it. We want to know what we're working towards, how long it'll take, what it'll look like when we get to the end. As a high school teacher, we call it our success criteria. We want to know our success criteria, so that we know when we hit it. It would have been really awkward in the moment, I think, for one of the disciples to let the silence sit. Or to maybe accept and admit, like Jesus, actually no, I, I don't get this. I'm gonna need a little bit more time for this to move within me. But true wisdom and the divine moves slow in us. That's why therapy takes time. That's why body work takes time. That's why spiritual formation takes time. And so there's no need for us to be embarrassed. There's no need for us to be ashamed, to admit to ourselves after 40 or 50 years of going to church that, and maybe it's even in the quiet moments, that we don't got it. We don't get it. We're not sure about this. We're not sure about ourselves, who we are, what our meaning and purpose is in the world. We're not sure about this God thing. Our image of God has shifted and changed. And we're not sure if we even have words to put on it anymore. We're not sure what's forming within us. We're not sure what's going to emerge, if anything. It is okay to respond to Jesus' teachings with hesitancy and confusion and not knowingness. Silence while it percolates. But as these teachings percolate in us, here's an invitation. There are 168 hours in the week. What do we do with those 168 hours to shift our internal posture in a way that allows us to hear these teachings in a new way, from the depths of our being, not just the surfaces or the persona, the mask that we put on when we walk about our day-to-day? What can we do, as St. Teresa of Avila says, to adventure into our internal, our interior castle and take a look around, become acquainted with our inner life? Or as James Finley says, uh, who he was a a monk for six years under Thomas Merton and then a a psychotherapist, uh, said, how do we choose an inner stance that offers the least resistance to being overtaken by the love of God? What can we do, or more accurately, what is the quality of our being that we can practice in our 168 hours, including the one hour that we have for church, Uh, in our 168 hours that might actually make a difference and give space in us for metaphor and parable and poetry and song to land in a deep way. So I wanna offer something that has helped me, um, and I think there's a slide for it, potentially, maybe. If not, I can describe it. (gasps) Yes, okay. this is a framework I really like. I've taught it for a couple of years in my workshops. It's super simple. Um, and as a high school teacher, I have a framework or some short way of saying everything. So this is going to be fairly tangible. Uh, here's how it works. A stimulus is something that happens. There are internal stimuli. There are external stimuli. An internal stimuli uh, would be uh, an emotion pops up or an inner narrative is existing within you. Uh, I'm not good enough. And so that stimuli, uh, you think it, and all of a sudden, oh, it's there, and it's going to impact your reaction. So a stimulus occurs. There's also external stimuli. Uh, So let's say uh, Brian right now is really tired of this sermon, comes up, and maybe punches me. That is an external stimuli. (laughs) Sorry. Um, That is an external stimuli. I then need to figure out how to react. The problem is, when we are running on autopilot, there isn't a lot of space there's no spaciousness between the stimuli and our reaction. When you are out walking the street uh, and a stimuli occur, a stimulus occurs, you see something. Your reaction is informed by so many invisible forces within you. It's informed by all of your own stuff, uh, your beliefs about yourself, your beliefs about the world. It's uh, informed by all of your prejudices all the things that you have been taught to think about the way the world works. It's informed by your fight, flight, freeze mechanism, your sense of safety Uh, for internal family systems. It's informed by all these little parts of you and whether or not they feel safe or protected or vulnerable or not. And so your reaction is quick and it just happens. Stimulus occurs reaction occurs. That's the experience that most of us have of autopilot. Something happens, we react. And if we're lucky, maybe we will get to reflection after a couple of days or hours or maybe weeks. Maybe we need a therapist to help us reflect on that moment of conflict with the spouse or a good friend who asks the right question. So take 30 seconds for yourself. Uh, think of a moment when that's been you, when something has happened and you just gut-checked reacted and maybe got to reflection later. Maybe it's right now. Maybe it's this morning. But what's a moment in your life where you've faced a stimulus and just an immediate gut reaction, no thinking involved? Some of these are really basic normal. This morning, uh, the alarm clock goes off. My immediate stimulus, my immediate reaction is I slam my hand on my phone, all five fingers and palm in a way that no button is actually gonna get clicked. It was just hostility, then I had to click it. Um, Stimulus reaction, okay. So there's another operating system, and I think this is where we connect with our scriptures today. Um, There's another operating system and this is one that we can shift into when we consistently engage practices uh, that are the slow type, the slow and ongoing practices of awareness, of openness, of, of curiosity, uh, when we do the work that only we can do to shift our internal posture. Viktor Frankl once said, uh, Viktor Frankl, for those of you who don't know, he's the Australian uh, or Australian Austrian uh, psychiatrist, he was a Holocaust survivor. And he said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. and In that space is our power to choose our response, so an intentional choice. And in our response, then lies our growth and our freedom. So as a high school teacher, I would often say chaos occurs. No matter what you're gonna do, chaos will occur. Um, So if we can put that, uh, oh, it's still up there, sweet. Um, So stimulus, stimuli are still gonna happen. No matter what you do in your life, things are going to occur. Chaos occurs. The curiosity or the question or the invitation is, what are you doing to broaden a sacred wedge into your life, into your operating system for awareness? How can you become aware in the midst of conflict of what's happening? Not just, I'm in danger, my defensiveness is going, but, oh, she's operating from this fear. Or she's operating from this thing that I did, and I'm operating from this sphere. Or he's doing that, and that's what, oh, Brian really needs this service to be an hour. And Andy's going a little long, that's why I now have a black eye. Like, got it. So there's awareness of the external, or awareness of the internal. I'm feeling super hungry, and that's why I'm angry. Um, Or, I haven't dealt with my own stuff. Last uh, time I was here, I mentioned a curmudgeon. My definition of a curmudgeon is a person who has grown older without having become acquainted with the depths of their inner life, with their own stuff. And so they end up blowing their trauma through other people's bodies, projecting their stuff onto others. It's a person who hasn't developed the spaciousness within themselves, the awareness of what's going on in their life. So, that awareness piece, and then when we have a deeper capacity for awareness, it opens up possibilities for new responses, for more intentional responses. Uh, Talk to anyone who has a long-standing meditation practice, they will tell you two things. Um, They will, they'll tell you more than two things, they'll tell you all about their meditation practice, Um, (laughs) but they will tell you two things. Uh, They'll tell you that meditation's really hard, and it's not about being perfect, It's just about setting the intention to do it and see what emerges. Um, And the second one is that they will say that it has helped them uh, in their day-to-day respond in crisis or respond to moments uh, a little bit more intentionally, full-bodily, wholeheartedly. And so the invitation in that space around practices of awareness is it can look like anything. It can look like meditation. It can look like, for me, a lot of long walks through nature. It can look like... Also for me, I really like watching ducks for some strange reason. I just like the way they float and communicate and move around. There's a pond near my work. That is my space of expanding my awareness and being able to sit with something beyond my own ego. So what is the practice you have that expands your awareness? For us today, when we are aware, more aware of our bodies and our narratives and those around us, the context of our lives, what we're going through, It allows for parables and poetry and music to land, for Jesus' teachings to land in new and deeper ways. Take another moment to think about your life. How often are you running on that first operating system, autopilot? Stimulus, reaction, maybe reflection. Being driven by your unexaminedness internally. Perhaps it's a feeling of adriftness or just going along to get along, rub some dirt on it, keep going. And what practices do you have to shift into the second one, to hear with a soft and gentle openness, to see things in new ways? How can you engage in that kind of practice a little bit more today than yesterday, a little bit more tomorrow than today? When I read these scriptures, I don't have a full grasp on what in the world Jesus is talking about. Um, I, when a critical, critical part of my brain says Jesus is inviting us into a slow investment. It's gonna take a long time for the kingdom of heaven and he's inviting us into a process. He's inviting us into slow work. And it's the slow work of opening ourselves so that we can hear and allow that water to percolate a little bit further down, the wisdom to land in new and deeper ways. So the disciples, when they heard things like the kingdom is like a mustard seed, the kingdom is like yeast being worked into 60 pounds of dough, the kingdom is like treasure hidden in a field or uh, merchants in search of pearls or net being cast, I wonder, similar to me, I wonder what their internal posture was like were, had they done the work internally in order for that wisdom to land in a deep way? Or was it just a rational cognitive thing for them? Was, did they just like Jesus? Was he charismatic and that's why they were following him? Or had they really engaged in the deep work? I ask the same question of you, right? Have you been going to church for 40 years because that's what you were taught to do? Or have you been going to church because you've been doing the deep inner work And every time you come, or maybe once every couple years, uh, you feel or you hear something new in a deeper way and you realize this process is helping you deepen. When we hear these teachings, have we thought about the ways we're using the other 167 hours of our week to do the slow and ongoing work of awareness and presence and to become acquainted with the depths of our inner life? Are we meeting the slow work of God with our own slow work? Trusting that when we do, the two become intertwined for us. There's no end to the process. There's no gold star for trying. There's no gold star for doing it right or getting a big certificate that says we are now spiritually formed. Huzzah. Um, We have to accept the anxiety of being incomplete, in suspense, liminal space, in between, we don't know where we're going. We have to trust. And so, if we're not doing the work in the other 167 hours, this is kind of my final question, if we're not doing that work currently in the other 167 hours to deepen our inner life, to do that slow work, how might you begin today a little more than yesterday, tomorrow a little bit more Today. Little increments. And then when you read the parables again and again, how are they landing in new and deeper ways within you? That's the invitation of of slow work. And when I think about these teachings, or my moment with Adele the other day, um, when I think about these moments, what am I doing to examine the depths of my inner life so that all of this music and poetry and beauty that's in the world? can land and bring me into a deeper experience of what it means to be alive. That's an invitation. Thank you.